Welcome to the Studying the Bible podcast, where every Thursday, pastors Dylan Dodson and Brian Androsian study a book of the Bible verse by verse to see what is being communicated and how we can use it to grow in our relationship with Jesus. We pray that today's podcast can help you grow just a little bit closer to Christ. Well, welcome to our online Bible study in the book of Esther. In this session, we're going to begin the book of Esther. What we'll do is we'll talk through really all the text at once, explain what's going on, and then give a few points at the end. And so Esther chapter 1, uh, to give you some context before we get into the book of things that are worth knowing, uh, there are only two books in all of the Bible that are named after women. Uh, one of them is the book of Ruth, and the other is the book of Esther. Uh, it was one of the last books written in the Old Testament. Of course, in terms of our English Bibles, it's not like one of the last ones in the English Bible in terms of order, but it was actually likely one of the last ones written. Uh, We don't know the author. Perhaps it was Esther's cousin Mordecai, who we'll read about in this book, um, but we do not know for sure. Uh, The events in this book took place around 480 BC in the country of Persia, which was the largest uh, nation in the world, the world I've ever seen at that time. And uh, the book here is going to give background for the, pe- the, for the Feast of Purim, uh, which is a Jewish feast that takes place because of the events that happened in this book that we'll get to in a couple of chapters. Now, what's interesting about the book of Esther is that Christians have historically not always been exactly sure what to do with the book. Uh, for example, we know the first seven centuries of the church, there were not any commentaries written on the book of Esther. John Calvin, well-known by many, one of the reformers, uh, there is no record that he ever preached a sermon from Esther, and we don't have anything that he wrote on about the book of Esther. Uh, Martin Luther, another well-known reformer, uh, said that uh, while, while he did include Esther in his German translation of the Bible, we do know that he had reservations with the book. Now, the question is why. Why people are nervous about it? Why is there not written a lot about it in early Christian history? Well, the reason is, is because it's, it's very difficult to interpret. Uh, it never mentions the name of God. Uh, we have no insight into the internal motivations of the characters, uh, and they make a lot of decisions, and we're not told what their motivation was or why they did it. Uh, we also uh, we also don't know God's perspective on it. So we're going to see God's hand assuredly throughout the book of Esther, but we don't know the motivations of the characters, and we don't know what God thinks about certain decisions that they make. There is no commentary. There is just narrative and history. And so it can be difficult to, to fully understand what to do with many parts of the book. And so, the last thing we would say before we get into it, what does the rest of the Bible say about the book of Esther? How does the rest of Scripture kind of intertwine it and interpret it? The answer to that is nothing, because Esther is not quoted in any other scriptural books. But of course, there's a lot to learn, but it does have its challenges, and so we'll do our best to understand what's going on uh, as we begin the book of Esther. Here is Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this, These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Kush. Now, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name for Xerxes, and that's the Greek name, which some translations have Ahasuerus, like this one, some have Xerxes. Uh, Again, at this point in time, it's the largest empire in the world. Uh, Some context, if you're familiar with the movie 300, where there's 300 Spartans fighting against the mighty Persian Empire. Uh, This is the Persian Empire they were fighting against, and that Xerxes in the movie is the Xerxes that we are reading about, or the Ahasuerus that we are reading about in this book. Uh, He is likely somewhere around his mid-30s at the time of the events as they begin described in this book. Verse 2, 
In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia, and he displayed the glorious, or, or the army of Persia and in media, sorry, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. So there's this massive feast, again, likely somewhere around 483 BC. Uh, this is going to be three years before his big expedition, failed expedition against, the, against Greece. And so right now, this is the height of the Persian Empire. Uh, Susa was modern day Iran, is in modern-day Iran. It's kind of his winter capital or his winter palace. He holds a massive feast, displays his wealth. Then it says this in uh, verse 4. <clears throat> Um, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. So a massive banquet. And now this banquet is in, pre- in preparation for the coming war with Greece. Um, the 180 is not necessarily days. It's not necessarily saying that the banquet itself, you know, there's a massive banquet every single day for 180 days. But there was some sort of public display for 180 days, for half of a year essentially, to kind of get the country, get the nobles, get everyone supported this war, this massive uh, expedition that he is trying to reign against Greece. And then verse 8, at the end of this time, so at the end of the 180 days, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress at Susa. White and violet linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on mosaic on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, mobile mother, uh, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. For seven drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The drinking was according to the royal decree. There are no restriction, restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Uh, so here we see two important things in these verses. Number one, uh, other than the temple, uh, it is other than the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it is unusual to have so much detail about a palace. The the scripture doesn't typically give so much detail to something other than the tabernacle or the temple in the Hebrew Bible. The point, of course, is to show how insane this place was. Uh, The decorations, the gold goblets, I mean, just massive display of wealth. Now, also worth knowing, typically, the second thing is that typically in these type of settings in the ancient world, you would have a toastmaster, and he would indicate when everyone could drink. Here, again, everyone could do whatever they desired. They could drink whatever they wanted. also shows us the lavishness and the, really the unprincipledness of human behavior, which is going to be a theme throughout this book of people doing whatever seems good in their own eyes, which, of course, ends in their destruction. Now, again, one of the other things that's difficult about this book is as you read it, to a Jewish reader, you would ask yourself, uh, where is God? Now, of course, you would know that God's presence only dwells in Jerusalem or in the temple or in the tabernacle. Now, for us, we would say God's spirit is present through people, through his church. And so it's interesting is what we think is that what, what happens when God is absent and not in control? So God is going to be absent from here. What happens when God is absent and not in control? And how does that even make the people who desire to honor him suffer? So here's what's going to happen next after this massive banquet. Verse 9. 
Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Ahasuerus' palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from wine, Ahasuerus commanded Mahuman, Bitztha, Harbona, Bigtha, uh, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, uh, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show uh, show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. So very clearly, we are told that ah, Queen Vashti is beautiful. And so near the end of this massive banquet, uh, the king tells his eunuchs, kind of the people that served him, uh, eunuchs, of course, were, would be, could be trusted with the queen and the women in the, in the king's harem because they were eunuchs, and so they could not do anything with them sexually. And so he tells his eunuchs to go get king, uh, Queen Brad, uh, Vashti and to bring her to present herself to him and to the royal uh, court. Now, what's actually going on here is that she would be required to come in with little or maybe even no clothes at all on just her crown, which, of course, is a humiliating and violating thing for any woman, especially for the queen. Now, the king was very drunk, and so Vashti refuses. Again, we're not told why she refuses, but she refuses. The king is drunk, and, of course, uh, it's also worth knowing that... that, that, the king's request typically doesn't happen because, number one, he's drunk. Number two, it's, it was a violation of, a, of custom for the queen to be someone who would do such a thing. But, of course, he asked for it anyway. Uh, she denies his request, and then he is not only furious because he's the king and really nobody tells him no, but he's also embarrassed because he's made a request in front of his royal court, and he is being denied in front of these people. Now, I just want to make a side note uh, real quick as we read this. It's very easy for us to have, and rightly so, disdain and disgust for Xerxes and for what he does and for how he wants to humiliate his queen. I think we should be careful, though, as we read this story, is to know that if we're being honest, one of the big differences between us and King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes is simply his power, right? That he has the ability to do whatever he wants without getting in trouble. And if we're being honest, though we do not have his power, you and I can do many of our own things in our own sphere of influence. Think about alcohol or porn or any other addictions that we might have. We need to humbly read this and know, man, without the Lord, without honestly pursuing him and asking for his power and his grace in our life, we are no different than Xerxes. And so he becomes angry. He becomes embarrassed that she doesn't come. And then here's what happens next, verse 13. The king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. The most trusted ones were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mamukin. They were the seven officials of Persia and Media who had personal access to the king and occupied the highest positions in the kingdom. The king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? And so, of course, the king has high-ranking officials that he would discuss legal matters with. Uh, It's probably 
somewhat unique for the king to, to consult his officials on such a private matter between him and his queen. But of course, the political ramifications certainly would have dictated this. He's trying to uh, get the country ready for war. He asks a request. He gets denied in front of the highest ranking officials, uh, the noble people of his country. And so he wants to figure out, how do I do to make this right? What do I need to do to make this right to make sure she is punished for what she has done? <clears throat> and here's how they respond, verse 16. Mamukin said, in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the officials and the peoples who are in every one of King Ahasuerus's provinces. For the queen's actions will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. Before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Media, who hear about the queen's acts, will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. And so what's happening here is that the King Ahasuerus is encouraged and recommended that in order for the other wives and women in the kingdom not to follow Queen Vashti's example, a decree must be made. Now, of course, this is also sad and tragic because what essentially is happening is we want to make sure the women in our kingdom do what they're told, no matter how it affects them, how it violates them, or how they are treated. And so a decree must be made. It must go out to everyone and say, you must not act like this. Now, of course, there's a lot of irony here because of certainly some people, particularly those around Susa, might have heard what have happened. The rest of the kingdom would have had no idea what, king, what Queen Vashti did and how she refused the king. The, the king. And so the irony is that by issuing this decree, this only spreads what happened to the king to the entire kingdom. And so in his anger, he makes this decree only to make things worse. And so in verse 19, it says this, If it meets the king's approval, he should personally issue a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter King Ahasuerus's presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree the king issues will be heard throughout his vast kingdom, so all the women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. The king and his counselors approved the proposal, and he followed Mamukin's advice. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each ethnic group in its own language that every man should, should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. So essentially what happens here, decree goes out, everyone has to obey their husbands so that this does not happen again. Vashti is essentially divorced and stripped of her role as queen. Now, again, there's irony happening here. Uh, the author of Esther may be writing around 20 years later. Again, we don't know the exact date nor the exact author. Here is showing uh, the quote-unquote wisdom of the king. So again, historically speaking, what we know a lot would happen, is particularly in the Persian Empire, is that they would get, uh, the officials would often get drunk and make decisions. And then the next day, you know, after their banquets, after their gatherings, they would wake up and after they would sober up, they would decide whether or not they wanted to see their decisions through. Was well, this a good idea that we decided the day before? Uh, now, of course, they and we, what the author wants to tell us here, what, one of the things that we're seeing here in the book of Esther is that we don't decide what happens in life. Even the king who thinks he has control over the whole kingdom can do whatever he wants. What the book of Esther shows us is that none of us are ultimately in 
control. And so again, although God's name is not mentioned, we're going to see him throughout the book, and we're going to see again that our decisions and our quote-unquote wisdom that we think we have, which often turns into folly, we just have no control. And so as we read chapter 1, I want to conclude with three things that stick out to me from Esther chapter 1. The first is this. It's to be reminded that prosperity is not a measure of God's blessing. It's so much, you know, we can think if I'm just faithful, you know, I'll have the relationships I need, the health I need, the the money I need, everything will be the way I want it to be if I'm just holy and healthy or holy and righteous enough. Clearly, we see in the book of Esther a wicked king who makes a lot of terrible decisions, who has everything from a worldly perspective. He's blessed. He's successful. He's wealthy. He can have whatever he wants. And so it's an important reminder as we read this book, it shows us that prosperity is not a measure of God's blessings. Certainly, God can bless us and provide for us, and we should be grateful when he does. But just because someone has a lot, and just because someone else has a little, it doesn't mean that they're actually honored and blessed by God, which is what the book of Esther is going to play out for us. So that's the first thing. Prosperity is not a measure. It's not a, certainly not an automatic measure of God's blessing in your life. And of course, if we look at Jesus and the disciples, the, you know, Jesus, God himself, the disciples, really faithful followers to him, all had terrible deaths because of their faithfulness, not in spite of it. So prosperity is not a measure of God's blessing. Number two, it's important to remind ourselves as we read this book, and as we mentioned a little bit earlier, that evil is not restricted to only those in power. It's not. It's really easy, I guess, it's particularly in our culture today, where we want to stand up against the man, we kind of have an anti-authority streak, and we kind of, we're suspicious of any power, any institution, anyone with money and wealth or authority, anything like that, and we kind of assume those people are bad, and the people who don't have as much are automatically good. As we read the book of Esther, as we read all of Scripture, we need to remind ourselves that you and, all, you and I also can do a lot of terrible things. Now, for us, we don't think there's a, they're as terrible because we justify everything that we do. So someone else could do the exact same things that you and I might do, and we can condemn them, but we justify it for ourselves, and we give all these excuses why it's okay or why it's not as bad for us to participate in these things. And so as we read this, remember, evil is not restricted to only those in power. All of us are capable of evil and sin and dishonoring God if we don't choose to honor him. And then last thing, here's what I want to leave us with. To remind us that Jesus is our true and better king. The scriptures are a unified story that leads to Jesus. Now you might say, how do you get that from here? Well, I want to just point out, as I am, the opposite of how Jesus is so different than Xerxes and how he is righteous and holy and good and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Here are some things worth knowing. Uh, Jesus, of course, is more wealthy than Xerxes. He is more powerful than him. What's interesting is Xerxes thought he was a man who had become God, as most ancient kings did. Jesus, we know, was actually God who became a man. Xerxes died, of course, and nobody worships him. Jesus conquered death, and billions have recognized him as God. Xerxes had many subjects from many nations. Jesus' kingdom has joyful worshipers from every nation. Not subjects out of obligation, but people that are grateful and thankful for what Christ has done for us. We see here that Xerxes threw enormous banquets, but Jesus will make his pale in comparison, and of course Jesus' banquet will last forever. 
Xerxes' kingdom came to an end. Persia, as it exists here, no longer exists. And of course, we know that Jesus' kingdom has no end, and he invites all of us into it through his death, burial, and resurrection. And finally, Xerxes thought himself as the king of kings, but he died and was judged by the actual king of kings. And what we see here is that God was present, as we're going to see from the very beginning, even in these evil acts, and he is just getting started. And so as we continue, remember this, that prosperity is not a measure of God's blessing, that evil is not restricted to only those in power, and Jesus is our true and better king that can be trusted with all authority, with all power, who lays it down not for what he can gain, but for us, not because he needs us, not because we can offer anything from him or to him, but simply out of his grace. So that's Esther chapter one. We'll move on to Esther chapter two in the next session.